This podcast is brought to you by BrunerAcademy.com, your online resource for the best public speaking, presentation, storytelling skills courses. Become a rock star communicator in any setting. Visit BrunerAcademy.com. At the age of nine, my guest was in a horrific fire that burned 100% of his body and nearly killed him. And yet, he survived. His journey from that day to where he is today is a remarkable story of faith, hope, and possibility. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner. I'm Liz, and my guest is on a quest to help each of us relearn what we once knew to be true, to reclaim our curiosity, our wonder, and live in awe. John O'Leary, I am so happy to have you on my podcast. Thank you for being here today. Liz, hearing your voice puts a smile on my face. So it is great to be back with you, and it's an honor to be on the show. Oh, thank you so much. All right, growing up, like many young boys, you wanted to be a professional baseball player. That was like this dream of yours, specifically, if I might remember, from the St. Louis Cardinals. Where'd that passion come from? So I'm a Missouri guy, born and raised in St. Louis. And the way we used to spend our summer times was, yeah, hanging out around the barbecue pit, following dad's footsteps wherever he went. But the soundtrack for the summertime was baseball. Baseball is it. You know, you're, you spend a lot of time in Boston. There's a little <laughs> bit of passion around baseball up in Boston, too. And so even when we would go as far as Weekapog, Rhode Island, as kids in the summertime, we never traveled without the radio signal telling us what our Cardinals were doing. So I, I just grew up loving baseball. Well, that dream of becoming a professional baseball player one day essentially ended when you were in your garage. And you decided you couldn't wait to make a fire dance. What <laughs> is a fire dance and what went wrong? A fire dance is the mistake that so many little boys make after watching older little boys do the same kind of thing on a sidewalk or in a back alleyway. And these little fellows, they were like 11, they would sprinkle gasoline on a sidewalk, strike a match, Liz. They would stand back two feet, throw the match on top, and the liquid would dance. And these were guys that I looked up to, that I respected. So I assumed if they could do it, that I could as well. And with my mom and dad gone on a Saturday morning, I walked into the garage, bent over a can of gasoline and tried to pour a little bit of gasoline on top of a piece of cardboard that had been ignited. So that, that was the beginning of this inflection point for me. You end up setting yourself on fire. You blow up your house. Your garage is basically ashes. Every room in your home is basically damaged in one way, shape, or form, and your fingers are amputated down to the knuckles. And here you are, 100% burns on your body, third-degree burns. Mm. Did you think you were going to die? Because most doctors would say, with 100% burns, you're not going to survive. I didn't know the science, though. I just knew I was burned and I knew I was in trouble. And if I'm being super honest with you today and why not, the real thought I had as a little guy was the only thought, in fact, Liz, oh my gosh, my dad is going to freaking kill me when he finds out what I did to his garage. You know, I wasn't worried about my hands or my body or survivability. I was certain of my father's wrath. And mm -hmm. so you asked the question, did I know I was going to die? Yeah. My dad was going to get me. I wasn't worried about the fire. I knew my dad's wrath. And I hear his voice on the hall. This is, I mean, just candid with you. He's yelling at some nurse, where is my boy, John? 
And she brings him back into this room, pulls back the curtain for him. Dad walks in. He's a veteran. He's a business owner. His shoulders are back, marches in, points down and says, John, look at me when I'm talking to you. <laughs> so I look up at my dad. And then he says, I have never, I have never been so proud of anyone in my entire life and my little buddy today, this morning. I am just proud to be your dad. And then he followed that with the words, I love you, I love you, I love you, and there's nothing you can do about it. My first thought on hearing this, Liz, was nobody told my dad what happened. You know, the, the old man doesn't, <laughs> I blew up his house, man. So, so I'm, I'm assuming now maybe my brother Jim's building the garage back up again, or like who knows what's going on at home. At that age, I didn't understand the power of grace and forgiveness and love and what really mattered in life. And back to your real question, did you know you were going to die? Not in the way you asked it. I just knew I was in trouble right behind my dad's love. And this is the turning point came my mom's. So my dad met me with grace. My mom met me with love. She took my right hand in hers, patted my bald head and said, baby, I love you. And I said, mom, knock it off with the love. Am, am I going to die? And her response, you would imagine for the listeners who might be parents out there, what would yours be? And hers, when I said, am I going to die, was, baby, do you want to? It's your choice. It's not mine. And I said, mom, I don't want to die. I'd like to survive. And her response, and this is when my life began to change, was, baby, look at me. You take the hand of God, you walk the journey with him, and you fight like you never fought before. She said, your dad and I will be with you every step along the way, but do your part, John. Fight, fight. And so after this little pep talk on day one, never again did I wonder during five and a half months in hospital if I was going to survive or not. I knew I was going to survive, maybe almost mm. blindfoldfully, but I knew I was going to survive this thing. And you did. And your family, amazing parents that you had, sought out many doctors in their attempts to give you the best possible outcome. And in your book, you talk about two doctors who had mm. completely different approaches. One was so negative, and the other who gave you hope, Dr. Papalardo. I seldom share this story at live events or in interviews because people don't know it. They don't usually go into the corners and ask this kind of question, so I'm glad you brought it up. After I got out of the hospital, my mom and dad are trying their very best to bring this little boy back to some sense of normalcy. So I'm still in a wheelchair. I can't walk yet. I can't write yet. I can't really return to school yet. But they know all those things eventually will come to pass. That's their hope. So they read about a doctor in Ohio that did a radical surgery that allowed him to cut into the webbings of the hand, essentially to cut out fingers where there previously had been only little nubs. So that, that's the surgery. So we hop in the old wooden station wagon, drive six and a half hours, meet with this person. And what I remember most about that day, we spent about an hour with this, this doctor. During the hour, he never once made eye contact with me, which, you know, even as a child, I was 10 then, but you know, when you're being talked about, not spoken with, he poked and he prodded, but not once did he really feel. And even as a kid, you know, the difference. And my father, near the end of this consult, says, Doc, what, what do you think about my son and the chance of this, this surgery working for him? And the doctor looked at me, then he looked back at my dad, and he said, Denny, if your son was a horse, I would shoot him. I'd put him down. God. And it, I know, it's like shocking. It's, it's malpractice. 
my dad was slow to anger, but my dad immediately stood, unlocked the wheelchair. We stormed out of that room. Mm. We drove six hours home in this quiet car and I wasn't even sure. And it's only years later that I really began to understand why mom and dad were so furious. But we drove home. And if the story ends there, it's kind of a tragic story of, oh man, they, they, they let this little boy down. But the awesome thing is about a week later, we met with a different physician. His name was Dr. Carlos Papalardo. This <laughs> unbelievable human being even back then. And he walks in with one of those old, big, thick medical folders in his hands. And he's holding it in front of him. So apparently he can't see us when he walks in. He's singing while he walks in in Italian. Okay. And I don't know what he, you know, I barely know English. I certainly don't know, know Italian. He's singing in Italian. It's this happy song. He puts the folder down in front of him, reads for a moment, claps his hands loudly at the desk. And he says, has it come to pass that today is the day I meet the miracle boy, John O'Leary? What luck is this? And then he claps his hands, lifts up the folder, starts singing again, stands up, walks out of that room, shuts the door behind him, and leaves my mother, father, and I just looking at each other like, what was what? this? <laughs> what have we missed here? <sighs> the door opened up. And I see this little face peek around the corner, not looking at my dad or my mom, but staring directly at me. And a patient knows, don't they? And an interviewer knows, or a mother knows, or a shop goer knows when we're being seen and spoken to. And he says to me, oh my, were you in here the entire time? <laughs> <laughs> I take the bait. I say, you know, nod my head. Yes. So he says, may I have your permission to walk in? You know, it's not even my room. But I say, yeah, <laughs> come on, doc. Come on, you have permission. He kneels in front of me, Liz, and he says, are you the miracle boy? Are you John O'Leary? And I nod my head and he says, it is an honor to meet you. May I shake your hand? So I've never been called the miracle boy and I've never had anybody shake my hand the way he's about to. With both of his hands, he shakes mine and he just says, it's an honor to meet you. <laughs> At the end of the visit, this man has articulated out that this little boy has unbelievable possibilities still in front of him. So my dad says, Doc, what do you think about the prospects of my son's surgery? What do you think about the prospects of his little hands? And the doctor looked at me and smiled. And then he looked at my dad and says, when I see your son's hands, I see something as beautiful as an Italian sunset. That's what I see when I see your son's hands. And he is attributing or connecting these broken, fingerless, useless, a horse that should be shot hands to something as beautiful and life-giving and redemptive as an Italian sunset to be celebrated. Mm. That's the story of these hands and the story of the doctor ultimately that did a surgery that allowed these hands to be used for good. Dr. Papalardo was filled with so much wonder and joy. And you believe that this truly comes naturally to children. This is how we're born. We're born free. And somewhere along the way to adulthood, we lose it. John, why do we lose it? Well, we'll need three additional podcasts for the time okay. to answer. <laughs> okay. Why do we lose it? And how do we get back in touch with it? Reader's Digest for everybody. In short, life is hard. I'm not the kind of guy who says uh, life is awesome all the time, period. So that's one of the reasons why we lose the sense of joy and optimism and curiosity and wonder for life. Life is hard. It does beat us down a little bit. That's one reason. 
Secondly, this is not to knock on educators because I love them. I married one. Okay. <laughs> I work with two of them down the hall. Like I, I love educators, but without a doubt, we take children in as three and four and five-year-olds and begin to show them that there is a way to advance to the next level. There is an answer that is appropriate on that multiple choice Scantron because we want to advance forward. We want to move to the front of the class. We want to get the A on the test. We want the pat on the back. We want the approval of our classmates and our teachers and our parents. And so we strive not to be curious, but to be right. And so we lose that sense of wonder and curiosity because life beats us up a little bit because education sometimes reminds us there is one way forward. And because uh, we want to fit in with others, mm -hmm. we don't want to stand out. What children beautifully teach us is life is a gift. It's an, a joy actually to be set aside, to be different. It's why they're unafraid of walking into class with their hair up. You know, like they, they don't polish their hair over. They don't tuck in their shirt. They don't try to have any ego when they step in. That kind of stuff hasn't creeped in psychologically by age five, six, seven. All those things come later on as we develop a sense of who we are, what matters and what does not. Well, you are now an internationally acclaimed speaker, podcast host of Live Inspired, a best-selling author, and your new book, which I just talked about a moment ago, is titled In Awe, Rediscover Your Childlike Wonder to Unleash Inspiration, Meaning, and Joy. And I told you when we first spoke last week, it is one of the best books that I have ever read, and I stand by that. So many profound lessons in there, John, coming from your experiences. And I'm going to start with a quote from your book. Here yeah. we go. Five freaking years of Tuesdays, okay? Tuesdays and Mrs. Bartello's piano lessons with no fingers. How do you play the piano with no fingers? Why did your mother insist that you take piano lessons after the fire? So what my mother saw in front of her is this little boy that she loved and would have done anything to return to, in quotes, normal, in quotes, perfection. But a little boy who had possibility in front of him, he did not yet see for himself. I didn't see the beauty in my life anymore. I'm nine, maybe 10 by the time Mrs. Bartello steps into my life. And I know that although my doctors had saved me, my life was over. I'm in a wheelchair. I'm tethered into muscle mass has been burnt away. I don't have fingers. I can't do a thing. So she made a phone call to remind me what a lie that was. And she called Mrs. Bartello, who shows up on that first Tuesday. My mom walks into the kitchen where I'm seated in this wheelchair and I look up and I say, Mama, why is she here? And I try to like point with my right hand to the teacher. Why is she here? But mom didn't say a word. My mother walks into this room humbly, quietly, bends down next to me, unhooks the brakes of my wheelchair, rolls me away from the pity party, takes me down the hallway, locks the brakes in front of the piano. Mrs. Bartello walks in. She puts a pen on top of my right hand. It's about to fall off, Liz. So she tethers three little rubber bands to this pen so it does not fall off. My left arm is up in an airplane splint. I'm on a morphine drip. The agony of surviving this burn, but the pain hasn't gone away yet. And back to that opening quote, I'm playing the freaking piano, man. Like, I'm playing the <laughs> piano with one pen tethered to my damaged, useless right hand. But the key to that is I am playing the piano. A boy who knew that he never would do that again. I've been through life. Life has beat me up too. And it was a lie. And then the teacher came back. And then she came back for five years. If you ever swing by and visit me in St. Louis, and I hope sometime when you're around, you will, you'll find a man who's got a piano, plays almost every single day with my kids, 
not because Mrs. Bartello makes me or because there's rubber bands holding a pencil to my hand anymore, but because I've learned a way through curiosity and creativity to hit a couple chords and to be fired up for, for the joy of music. Mm-hmm. And not only for the music I can create, but for the music my kids and I can create together. I credit my mom, though, with, with that lesson. Yeah, she was a rock in many ways. And you actually played the piano in front of a live audience. Am I right about remembering it was Vegas, MGM? It was Vegas, baby. So, uh, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. But apparently that story has, has made its way outside of Vegas. No, it's, it's out there now. How did that come about that you played the piano in front of this live, huge crowd? I'm not a perfect pianist by a long stretch, not even close. You know, no fingers, or right? They haven't yet grown back, Liz. So I very rarely would play. But one time in a little school building, a, a little girl was asking me if there were things I could not do. And I'm like, you know, that, not that I can think of, not many. And we're going through that. And she's like, can you shoot baskets? So I show them, it's a gym. I'm like, yeah, I can shoot. Come on, pass me the ball. So I, I, I balance the ball, my right knuckles shoot up toward the hoop. And like, I make it. And the kids love that. And then one of them says, what, what else would surprise us that you can do? And in this gym, there was a piano. I can play the piano, guys. So I walked over there and I played the piano, not thinking much of it. There was this moment, like 10 seconds of dead silence. And then all these kids leapt to their feet and they were just blown away that this dude without fingers could jam Coldplay in front of them. So that was the first time I ever played live. One of the parents was a woman who worked at a company called Arbon. Arbon is a, a sales organization, leadership organization. They brought me out to speak in Hawaii. And it was only a couple dozen, maybe a hundred of these Arbon leaders. But part of the deal was they wanted me to play. So I, I played for them. And then when they brought me back to speak in front of 30,000 consultants in Las Vegas, part of the deal was, hey, John, we want you to speak. But if, if you would, would you play the piano for our consultants? That's how the story shook out. And I can't tell you, I, I get nervous in a podcast with one. I get nervous when I speak in front of a few. I get really nervous when I speak in front of thousands or 30,000. But to sit down in front of them and play the piano, <laughs> yeah, I have like butterflies right now thinking about the anxiety walking over to the bench. <laughs> you know, I'm not Barry Manilow, man. Like, you know, not Billy Joel, but I sat down and I, I rocked the piano that day. I love it. Let's get back to baseball for a moment because your love of the game also included former sportscaster Jack Buck, who did play-by-play for the St. Louis Cardinals, your favorite team. You say you are alive because of Jack. How did he save your life? I think we underestimate the power of our life to influence change around us, mm-hmm. negatively and positively. And we are instigators of both if we're not intentional. I came into the hospital on January 17th. burn, 87% was third degree, no chance to survive. And the day after I come into this room, I'm laying in a hospital bed dying, barely survived the first night. I'm tethered down to this hospital bed, cannot move my arms or my legs. My lungs are burned, so I can't breathe on my own. They put a trach, you can still see the scar, Liz. They put a trach right on my neck so I can breathe, but I can't eat or drink or speak. And due to swelling, my eyes are swollen shut. So there it is. I'm cut off from the world. I'm alive, but barely. And I'm in darkness. I had months to just listen. The voice more than any other, maybe <laughs> almost more than my mom and dad that I loved growing up was the voice of Jack Buck. And I'm laying in a hospital bed on a Sunday morning dying. When the door opens up and footsteps walk in, I heard them. And a chair comes across the floor. I heard them. 
And then I hear this voice and the voice was that of Jackbox. And it said to me, kid, <laughs> kid, wake up, wake up. You are going to live. You are going to survive. Keep fighting. John O'Leary Day at the ballpark will make it all worthwhile. And then he asked a question, all great journalists do. He said, kid, are you listening? <laughs> so I tried to answer with my little head nod and he responded, good, keep fighting, keep fighting. Mm. I hear the chair get pushed back, dragged across the wall. And then I hear right before the door opens up, he says, kid, keep fighting, see you soon. And then he walks out. He is told by the doctors and nurses when he does so that the little boy is going to die. And when this diagnosis shows up in our world, whatever the diagnosis of destruction might be, what we do next will influence what happens next, I believe. And you ask the question, do you think Jack influenced your life? Absolutely. Because the following day, he came back into it and he said the words, kid, wake up. I'm back. You are going to live. Keep fighting. John O'Leary Day at the ballpark will make it all worthwhile. And he continued those five visits for the next five and a half months of my hospitalization. And when Jack wasn't able to attend himself, he would send either ball players like Ozzie Smith or Andy Van Slyke, or you name the ball player at the time. He would send hockey players in St. Louis and in Boston. Hockey's a big deal. Football players, the coach for the football Cardinals. These were just champions for life. These little men and women and leaders who would show up and just sit with me for a while and encourage me to fight on when we struggle, to have someone struggle with us. Mm -hmm. I really believe it's a difference maker. Jack struggled with me during those difficult months in hospital. Amazing. And yet, you didn't go to his funeral. You even write about you drove to the church, you couldn't get out of the car. You felt like you didn't fit in. So why didn't you get out? And explain that feeling of not fitting in. I think we can understand it from and an intellectual level, but take us to that emotional level. I would imagine you don't need to be burned to wonder if you fit in. Right. So I certainly did as a little boy who dreamed of nothing more than fitting in, meaning mm -hmm. not being burned, not missing my fingers, not being in a wheelchair, not being stared at, not being less than indifferent than everybody else. And so I, I dreamed of wanting to be like everybody else and knowing how far that was from my reality which was part of the struggle. Mm -hmm. and the second part of the struggle was never feeling worthy of the love that Jack gave me. So if you don't really feel comfortable in your own skin, it also yeah. means you're not worthy of the love you receive from others, whether that's in a relationship, parenting from a teacher, a rabbi, pastor, a first boss, a profoundly successful radio announcer named Jack Buck. If you don't love yourself, how can you possibly embrace love of others? So I, I never was able to embrace that fully. And then Jack gets diagnosed with something called lung cancer and other forms of cancer that slowly peel away the gift of his life over five and a half months in hospital, which was the exact amount of time I had in hospital. So here's my time to give it back, to show up, to, to knock on the door and walk it and say, hey, kid, you know, I, I love you, man. Look what you did for me. They're like, this is a man who loved me well for decades. Yes. And here's my chance to finally say, thank you. Thank you, Jack. Look what you've done, man. This is painful. Like, I, I don't enjoy sharing this part of the story. But if it works to bring someone else forward and to first love themselves in order mm -hmm. to love others well, hey, I'll do it. So I never went by the hospital. Is that your biggest regret, John? 
well, gosh, I got a lot of them, but it's my biggest regret in the, in the story with Jack Buck, because yeah. as painful as it was not to show up at his funeral, he wasn't even there for it. Mm. I, I believe Jack was already partying with his friends and waiting for his family on the other side of eternity. But the bigger regret was not being there for him when he needed me more. Mm-hmm. So yeah, th- those are massive regrets. Yeah. And regrets, I think all of us can relate to in one form or sure. another, maybe not showing up for someone in a hospital bed, but gosh, there've been times in our life where we weren't there for someone else in need right. or ourselves in need because we didn't feel like we deserved that self-care, that love. So I got a call from his widow the day after he, was, he died and you know, invited me out to this funeral and I went. The first reason I did not go in is because I looked in my rear view mirror and that's the first time I saw who was walking in. The first person I noticed walking in was a fellow broadcaster, a guy named Mike Shannon, a ball player back in the 60s, an announcer for decades. And then to my left was a guy named Dan Deerdorf, CBS broadcaster, big time announcer, Hall of Famer. Dang, he's getting out of a big old Mercedes. And then I looked to my right, the owners of the St. Louis Cardinals. These are guys who belong in that funeral. And then I look in the mirror again and I see this 23-year-old fake (laughs) who can't even tie a tie by himself. And so I waited for the doors to shut. I waited for the last one to walk in. And then with pain, I flipped my little car back on and pulled away from the church. Mm. So that's my experience of the funeral of Jack Buck. And it, it's difficult to share, but it's part of the story. You share so many wonderful stories in your book. And you talk also about the fact that it took you 15 years before you were actually able to feel comfortable enough to share your story publicly and let go of the fear of showing those outside scars, let alone the inside scars. And now you say you are not hiding anymore. You are celebrating who you are, and you're sharing with the world who you are on the inside and the outside. What does that feel like? <laughs> Freedom. I think it's the final yeah. chapter. I, I haven't read in on a while, but I, I think the final sense is freedom. So even that sense, like where did, from where did it grow, John? When Jack passed away and I pulled down the church lane and made a left-hand turn to get back on the highway, I never really made it back onto the roadway because I was crying so hard. And if I talk much about it, I'll do it again. So doggone it. (laughs) I just pulled over and had one of those ugly cries and not the kind where you can have in in 19 seconds and then go back to your life. The kind that grip you for Mm. more than an hour. I hope every one of us in our lives have and had a cry like that, because what a gift that is to feel like that, both grief and also joy. Mm. So I had that kind of grief cry. And although I wasn't able to make it back into the funeral, the thing had already ended, I determined to live differently afterwards. And so one of the reasons why not being there for Jack is no longer the greatest regret of my life is because it led to a turning point. Yes. It led to that freedom that you asked about a moment ago. I, I decided that day to live differently than I had for the 15-ish years after being burned, which led to a different way of loving my parents, thanking them for things they did for me as a child and still did for me as a young man. I never really thanked them. Yeah. How do you thank mom and dad? Mother's Day, I guess, maybe we send the card, maybe flowers from time to time. Mm -hmm. But I took them out to dinner that night, cried with them and thanked them. Went out to my grandparents, started living differently, started volunteering, got involved in, in church at a much higher level, got involved as a hospital chaplain, working with kids, who go through burn events or cancer diagnosis and got to serve them and finally embrace the scars in the mirror. So you said, John, how did it feel to embrace your story internally and externally? Awesome. Doesn't it always? Yes. 
rather than waiting, start now. So this authenticity, this honest way of living is what kids do naturally. So to take it all the way back to where we, we began, little kids leave the house with their shirts untucked, with their hair a mess, with boogers coming out of their nose, and they have smiles on their face because they don't care about how you feel about them. They love themselves and they hope that you do too, but they're not all that worried about it. That authentic, joyful, free way of living is the invitation not to return to childish behavior, but childlike wonder in life. You yourself have four beautiful children. What are you learning from them? <laughs> Hold them tight. I wrote the book in awe. Primarily, it was about little kids teaching me to live like a child. The majority of the book comes from the ages of when they are four, six, eight, and 10. Awesome, awesome ages. Now these little ones are 10, 12, 14, and 16. <laughs> Different words to describe the ages, in particular the 16-year-old, but it's still awesome. Yeah. And more than that, these are fading. Soon it's going to be 11, 13, 15, and onward from there. And eventually I'm going to be an empty nester. What they're teaching me about life is don't wish away this day. Not a moment of it. Mm -hmm. We keep waiting for the next vacation, the next milestone, the next job, the next big podcast get, the next book to come out, retirement, the house on the beach, whatever the thing is tomorrow. These kids have taught me to live today well. And even in the, the way I wrote the book, I, I began by saying, hey, kids, you taught me this. And there will come a time where you forget the lessons you taught me. I write this book for you yes. so that when maybe I'm no, no longer here or you no longer remember what you taught me, this book might remind you of it. Awesome. John, I was so honored to be a guest on your show recently, Live Inspired. And I'm going to steal two of your questions that you asked me, only two of your seven. So number one, if you could have a conversation with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? So it's odd because I've asked this question now of 500 <laughs> friends. Yes. And I don't think anybody has ever asked me that. So the question is, if you could be on a bench, this is the way I ask it, with anybody on a gorgeous day in any setting you desire and have this long conversation, with whom would it be? You're pausing to think, I can tell. <laughs> the kiss ups would say my wife. And, and the smug ones would say uh, Lincoln or uh, Aerosmith or wh whomever. I think I would want to sit with St. Paul, who wrote half of the New Testament. And he came at it from a place first of skepticism and probably even hatred. And then he came full tilt into it. Let's talk about Damascus. Let's talk about what you felt. Let's talk about what changed. Let's talk about what led to this conviction in life. And let's talk about what it means for very ordinary, broken dudes like myself. Okay. Now, question number two. Like I said, only two of your seven. If you could sum up your life in one sentence, what would that be? Mm. So I walked into a podcast years and years ago. It was up in New York. But outside of his studio was a huge synagogue. I couldn't even read what it said because it was in a foreign language, maybe Greek, uh, maybe Hebrew. But it said, when I asked for the translation, what is this? And he said, oh, it's a Bible quote. And I said, what does it translate to? Seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. So John, if you could do one thing really, really well to teach your readers and listeners and wife and aging parents and beautiful little kids and coworkers and friends you meet in airports and audiences, if I could teach them through my life to seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. And a marketplace said, may not do all those things so brilliantly. That would be a really cool uh, one sentence lead behind. 
Well, to everybody who is listening today, I invite you to go to John's website, johnolearyinspires.com. Just like it sounds, johnolearyinspires.com. And order his book. Please order his book and read it. In awe, rediscover your childlike wonder to unleash inspiration, meaning, and joy. And listen to his podcast, too. You'll be inspired, definitely, to live your best life. John, I am so happy that we had this chance to reconnect again today and really appreciate you showing us how to be brave and how we can celebrate who we are so that we can live our best life. Thank you so much. Liz Brenner, you are exhibit A of that. So thank you for being my friend. Oh, thank you for being my friend. And I'm grateful to all of you who are tuning in each week to listen to this show. Like John, I too invite all of you to live in awe, wonder, and joy. Thanks for listening. Until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud and Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self. Check out fasttwitchmedia.space.